Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 409 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Claire Chambers speaks with Anne Morgan about the experience of having a breakout success, the secret to creating convincing historical settings, the disruptive influence of mobile phones on storytelling, and the importance of balancing pessimism and optimism in a writing career. Claire Chambers published her first novel in 1992 and kept up a steady rate of publication for the following two decades. But it would be her ninth novel, published after a gap of nearly ten years, that would transform her career. Long-listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction and optioned for television, the historical novel Small Pleasures has been a massive word-of-mouth success. Sitting down with me in the dining room of her South London home, Claire started off by telling me where writing began for her. I think I always knew that I was a writer from quite a young age. I was always writing stories and I think if you've got that sort of personality where you, you're someone who sort of sits on the sidelines watching things, you kind of know that you, you might be a recorder rather than an experiencer of life. But I didn't start writing until after I left university, you know, writing for pleasure, really. What prompted that starting to write? My husband, well, he wasn't my husband then, my, my then boyfriend got an exchange to New Zealand as a teacher and I went with him for a year. So we swapped our house and his job and I couldn't work, I couldn't get a work permit. Part of the deal was that you couldn't then go and work. So I had nothing to do for a year and I thought, well, if I can't write a novel in a year when I've got nothing else to do and I haven't got any distractions, then I'm not really a writer. Well, so really in at the deep end with a novel as the first thing. Yeah, I mean, I I had a, a year, and I had I'd been I'd been thinking how nice it would be to write a novel all the time I was at university, but didn't have time because I was writing essays. So it was a, a novel of you know a, a typical first novel, rite of passage, young persons sort of thing. So it didn't require research. So it was kind of all about me. So <laughs> it was it was easy to get into, and without any distractions, the, the easiest really way of writing a book you could you could devise. Wow, and was that your first published novel? Yeah, it was published when I came back to the UK. I found a publisher. I got a job in publishing with that in mind, thinking I want to work with books in one way or another, whether I'm published or not. And then after I'd worked for this literary publisher for about a year, I got up the courage to show it to one of the editors and they took it from there and published it themselves. Wow, I mean, for a lot of people who want to be a writer, that sounds like the dream, doesn't it? It sounds like... You know, you wrote the book and then showed it and it was accepted and published. It sounds very seamless. Was that the experience? <clears throat> no, it, it wasn't. I mean, I, I'd sent it to agents and they'd been kind of warm but non-committal. It was all, yes, we really like your writing, send us the next thing you write and that sort of thing. And I had no contacts in publishing. I mean, I, I, all, all the contacts I have are ones I made through just getting a job in, in the traditional time-honoured manner of writing hundreds of letters to publishers and saying, please, can I work for you? I'll do anything. So although once I was in publishing, I then had contacts because I was there, I certainly didn't have any to get in the door. And you were quite young, weren't you? I mean, mid-twenties when your first book came out. Yeah, I wrote it when I was 22, 23, and it was published when I was 25. That's so uncertain terms. Yeah, I've since reverted the rights to that because I can see now that it has 
kind of the, the strengths and weaknesses of a, a first novel by a very young woman. And I'm not sure I, I need it to be out there. That's interesting. So it was Andre Deutsch, wasn't it, that you worked with? Yes. The... And Diana Attil was there. Yes, she was an editor and a director of the firm at that point I think and I remember when I started you know I I saw this quite to my youthful eyes elderly lady kind of walking around the building and I thought good heavens that poor old lady still (laughs) having to work for a living it's so it's you know it's inhuman and then I found out who she was and and and, you know she would have been in her mid-70s at that point so she still had another 25 years of productive work ahead of her even though she wouldn't have known it at the time. What was she like? I mean, I'm a huge At Hill admirer. Her writing, I think, is amazing. What was she like in person? Well, in person, she was much quieter and more dignified than than her, you know, her life and her works would would suggest. You would imagine you're meeting somebody much racier <laughs> if you would read any of her books. But she was very modest and charming, and you know, delightful. She just loved books and writers and editing, and you know, even into her. 70s 80s 90s at that point she was more of an editor than a writer really so obviously we knew that she was a a really good writer but she wasn't certainly wasn't famous as being a writer at that point she was young in her writing career really yes (laughs) yes and after that first novel you wrote and published another seven novels in 20 years and a really prolific spell I never thought of myself as being prolific I always thought of myself as being fairly slow I mean I take about three years to write a book and I always felt that was that was a decent length of time to spend. You, you know, you wouldn't want to rush it, and it's not as if people are short of other material to read. So I never felt obliged to do any any faster than that. And besides, I had children to bring up, and, you know, it just wasn't possible. But, you know, within 20 or so years, you find, it, oh, I have written a few books, none of them with any great fanfare or, or success. It was a very slow and kind of unrewarding process, really. How did it tend to work for you? I mean, was there a sort of recognisable pattern that there was a certain period in which an idea would form and then you'd work on it? Was there a particular process? Yes, um, usually it would be it would be dictated by contract. So the first book would grow out of enthusiasm and interest and be perhaps the stronger of the two books of a two book contract. And I would write the book and then sell it, and it would be a two book deal. And then I'd have to write another one to a deadline. So I always felt that the second of every two book deal was was slightly rushed, or I was writing it perhaps more urgently than I would have if I had been out of contract. And I also knew how little it was worth because I'd already been paid for it. You know that it's not going to surprise you. Whereas when you're writing a book without a publishing contract, you have this idea of infinite riches and and celebrity and success in your mind. And you certainly don't have that when you're writing the second. And then there was a bit of a gap. The last book I published was a young adult book called Burning Secrets. Mm. That was the second of a two book contract again. And having done that, I felt I'd really done with YA fiction. I really felt it wasn't really my avenue because I like to write what I think of as sort of realism. It's very difficult to write really realistic adventures because they're not that realistic or they're not that adventurous. And I'm not a sort of fantasy writer and I wasn't a historical writer. So I felt it's very difficult to write contemporary books for young adults, especially if you're very slow as I am and your audience is going to have grown up and not be a young adult by the time you finished. So I felt I wanted to go back to writing adult fiction again. And I spent about five years writing a book which I thought was going well. And when I finished it, my agent was 
a little bit unenthusiastic and my regular publisher turned it down and that sort of floored me really because I hadn't seen it coming I hadn't known that there was something wrong with it which worried me because I thought if I didn't notice that it was unpublishable how will I know next time that what I'm writing is publishable or not so it was quite a difficult time because obviously five years is quite a long time to work without pay and I I think that sort of did cause me to have a, a year or more of quite deep depression about things you know I felt Perhaps my writing career was over and that there wasn't a way back into publishing from where I was. The longer I left it, the more I'd be forgotten. And it did seem really as if it might all be over for me writing-wise. Um, so that it was quite difficult to get myself out of that mindset and to build up the sufficient motivation to try something new. How did you build up that motivation? It was a realisation that the only way to solve the problem the only way to get out of this sort of ditch I was in was to was to sort of write my way out there was no other way nothing good was going to happen to me that I didn't make happen the only thing I could do was make my writing better all the things about publishing that you can't influence there's no point in fretting about them the only thing you have any influence over is the quality of your own writing so I just thought I need to write better it sounds so glib it's easy to say it's very difficult to do because it takes so long to go from that position of thinking this is what I need to do to actually doing it, you know, years, another few years. And keeping positive in that time is is not easy. But my husband's very supportive and he always sort of was encouraging me and, and not making me feel that I'd wasted time or that, I, you know, my years would have been better spent in a more productive career, which would have at least earned regular salary. So he never made me feel that writing was a gamble or a waste of time, which is very important for a writer. You need people to reinforce the the sense that what you're doing is worthwhile. Mm. And so then it was another book? Well, it was a complete change of direction for me. I found a new agent because I sort of thought I need somebody I've not exhausted, you know, that I haven't sort of dragged them down with me into my failure. I need somebody who is sort of coming to my writing fresh. So so my new agent sort of gave me permission to, to do something different and say, for a start, you don't have to be funny if you don't want to be. I'd always felt a sort of obligation to entertain the reader by being funny. And it's quite difficult to be funny all the time and doesn't always work. And it means that certain stories are also out of bounds because some things aren't that funny. And the story that I had in mind to write about was something I'd heard on the radio about 20 years before and sort of parked as an idea about a a woman who claimed to be a virgin mother. And it was obviously set in the 1950s when DNA tests weren't available. So I knew it was going to be a sort of historical type of fiction, which was also a departure for me. But I had a sort of feeling that it wasn't at heart a funny story that there was going to be some sort of darkness in this it was important to me to be told you don't have to be funny you know you can just write just tell the story so then it was a question of deciding this time instead of making the mistake I'd made with the five-year failed project what I needed to do was really plan what I was going to write before I sat down and started it's very tempting to launch into something in a great access of enthusiasm before you've really ironed out the wrinkles and I didn't want to do that this time So I I did plot it quite carefully before I started. And then once I had that plot and that skeleton, the writing of it was much more pleasurable. It flowed much more easily because I wasn't reaching those little impasse points that you get in a novel that you're trying to grow organically, where you realise you're in a sort of dark wood and you can't see the way out. So I didn't have any of that with this one. That was a real pleasure. That's really interesting because as a writer, I find that if I plan too much... It can kill the thing. I fear that there's no 
sense of discovery or, or joyfulness, playfulness to it, which I, very much in a first draft I need. And yet Small Pleasures, which is the book we're talking about, which went on to be a huge bestseller and optioned for TV and all these other things, and was long listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction. It does have that real sense of playfulness. It does have that sense of surprise. How did you manage to hold on to that? I think that the, <clears throat> the structure just gives you the permission to not panic. And you can still change things if those sort of serendipitous moments of inspiration come to you when you suddenly have this brilliant idea that definitely wasn't there at the beginning you can still do that you don't shut them down it's just that you're not waiting for them anxiously and they're not coming you can proceed with your plan my previous books I'd always written in the way you describe where you let it grow and you see where it takes you and you may have a a sort of sense of a destination but it's very much every time you sit down you're thinking right what now what now I just slightly lost confidence and lost courage with that approach. And I think maybe it's to do with getting older. You feel that your mind is not quite as playful or not quite as energetic as it was in your 20s. And you don't want to risk wasting those years again. So I just felt that the structured approach was the best one for me. Mm. It's really interesting because although in some ways Small Pleasures is a departure from your previous work, as you said, there are, I think, recognisable Claire Chambers traits that bridged through from your earlier work into that novel. So something that really struck me, reading The Editor's Wife, for example, and thinking about Small Pleasures as well, was that with both of those, you start with something that's quite intriguing as a story concept. So the the virgin birth idea, for example, with Small Pleasures, where you have your central character, Jean, who's a journalist at a local newspaper, sets off to investigate this story of this virgin birth. And then at about a quarter of the way through the novel, maybe slightly slightly less than that, almost the main story comes in, which actually isn't the Virgin Beth, it's something else. It's about a relationship that develops as a result of this investigation without trying to give too much away. And similarly with the editor's wife, we start with this intriguing situation where two brothers have been left in a situation, their parents have died and there's the house and there's this difficult brother who is getting in the way of the narrator and dealing with this this legacy. And then again, sort of about a quarter of the way in this other story, the editor's wife, in fact, the title character doesn't appear until about a quarter of the way Mm. into the novel. Mm. And I find that really interesting because these days there's this real fashion for grabby prologues where you hit the reader with Mm. the main story straight away, (coughs) almost drop them right in at the most dramatic moment and then reel back and tell the story. And with you, it's always like sleight of hand. You start us with something that is attention-grabbing but isn't actually really what you're up to. Yeah, I think that's been a sort of method of writing that I've, one might say, flogged to death or, you know, (laughs) developed developed and refined, to to put it another way. Um, But... I think my, my earlier book certainly started with a, a sort of interesting premise or, or starting point, springboard, and then we'd jump back into the past and work out how we got there, and then we'd go on to find, and then what happens next. Small Pleasures wasn't quite the same as that because it all took place within six months. The backstory of the characters you might get in conversation, but it wasn't a sort of dive down into the past and reconstruct the childhood or something. It was a fairly straightforward narrative with a fairly limited cast, whereas I think my previous books, and certainly the one that went wrong, had many more kind of subplots and side plots. That's what had gone wrong with the, the failed book, was that it was all subplot and no plot. And I was very conscious that I was going to rein in that tendency that I have to 
to get more interested, to be distracted by a minor character and get more interested in them than in the plot. This was why I needed to plan it, to stop that tendency, to try and just tell the story I was telling. Mm. But I suppose an element of that crept in where the virgin birth investigation, it's not a crime story, it's not a, it's not a mystery novel, it, it does have an element of that, but it's about characters. So that sort of structure where you're going forward relentlessly wasn't quite good enough. I needed to expand it and have that slight detour where we're taking in the relationship that develops between Jean and and the family she's investigating and that becomes the story and Jean becomes the miracle rather than the virgin Mm. mother. That's a lovely way of it. Yes, that's exactly what happens, isn't it? Although you do, in a way, because you do have a prologue, don't you, which is about this train crash, Mm. which is actually, it's quite risky in a way because this prologue is it the newspaper report? Am I remembering right? Yes, it's, yeah, it's a fictitious report. newspaper yeah. report of a real train and crash. And it's there, and then it's not referred to again for a very long time. And almost to the point of, I'd almost forgotten by the time it became relevant that mm. it had appeared there. That was the plan. I'm the sort of person who impatiently doesn't properly read front matter at all. I'm you know, I, I sort of impatiently flick through those early bits, you know, you know, in Frankenstein or whatever, there's a sort of a letter oh, yes. within a letter, letter with another letter yeah. and <laughs> an event I, uh, get to the story. It, yeah. So I wrote this really to punish people like me who don't read <laughs> the front matter properly. But of course, there was no way of jogging the reader's mind or refreshing their memory because the thing that I was writing was in the future and mm. the rest of the book was set before. So you couldn't then remind people of something that hadn't happened yet yeah um there was no way no way around that and i i wanted it to be forgotten and then remembered what's so clever about it actually is because it is so yeah it's forgotten and then remembered it lends a feeling of inevitability to what happens having Mm. had that they're Mm. having it somewhere in the back of the memory the reader's memory we don't remember it it may not be at the forefront of the mind but there's an extra level of something coming yeah and there are there are many significant moments that take place on trains in the book Mm. anyway and so the the train journey becomes a sort of fraught or area of potential and danger with every with every trip yeah there's something that's so brilliant in the novel and there are many things that are brilliant but the detail the way that you get the household brands in the fabrics all these things that it's done really skillfully because it feels entirely real and not showy at all. There are some historic novels that feel almost a, a sort of show off the amount mm. of detailing that's there. But in Jean's world, it just feels entirely natural. How did you go about doing that? At what point did all that research come in? I felt that that was really something that was very necessary to do because I felt one of the things I like about writing is doing that sort of observational thing where you 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 notice odd, quirky, funny things and you put them in. But when you're writing about a period that's too early, you can't do that because you weren't there to notice anything. You can't notice things that happened before you were born. So you're having to confect this sense of observational awareness you need to know everything about what was available what was possible and what wasn't so that it's not anachronistic but then you just have to use hardly any of it because in a contemporary novel you wouldn't describe everything in terms of what it was made of or so I just kept having to check myself and think I mustn't describe something just because I know what it was like or just because I'm making giving a point that this is this is set in the 50s I must only describe it if I would have described it in a contemporary novel and I must do it exactly in that way so for instance you wouldn't say 
you know, she picked up the heavy Bakelite telephone receiver because you would never say he picked up his crystal and aluminium iPhone. You know, you just you just <laughs> wouldn't. And so those yeah. those sort of things were constantly in my mind, not to over describe, but to be very sparing with, with the detail, but only use it where it was necessary. And also the, the idea of furnishing a house, you know, in your mind from the 1950s, you look at all these sort of books on 1950s furniture, but then you have to remember that, of course, if your characters are anything like my family were, then you, unless they, they are super fashionable people, their house isn't going to be furnished with things from the 1950s. They're going to have mm-hmm. stuff from generations before. Their house is going to be furnished in the style of, uh, you know, a house from the 1920s or previous. So it's kind of easy to fall into traps with historical fiction where you're desperately trying to make it accurate, but you're forgetting that history is continuous and that people aren't as fashionable as you think they would be, you know. Yeah. So that that was kind of a good moment when I thought, actually, they wouldn't have a, a 50s house because they're old people who've inherited all this rubbish from generations before. Yeah. It's better to, I think, err on the side of a light touch with detail rather than in trying to get in everything that you know. Now, all that effort paid off, didn't it? Because Small Pleasures was a huge success. When did you get the first indication that it was going to take off in the way that it did? Quite late on. I mean, it wasn't one of those books that was a success pre-publication. Although three publishers had bid for it, it wasn't what you'd call a kind of an auction. I sort of think of it as more of a boot fair, really, because, (laughs) you know, I, I didn't get huge amount of money for it and the three publishers who were interested all offered the same amount so there wasn't a question of them outbidding each other it was just this is what we're offering which of us do you want to go with the advance was similar to what I'd received for my other unsuccessful books so I had that slight presentiment that things were not going to be any different this time than they had been in the past it was quite late on that the feedback from you know social media when proofs went out was starting to be very positive and they put a beautiful jacket on the book. The publisher just did a really good job of getting it into the hands of people who might have enjoyed it. And mm. and social media is had obviously completely changed the, the marketing arena since the last time I was published. When I was first published, the publishers would say things like, oh, this is such a word-of-mouth book. And you think, by which you mean there is no budget for publicity. Not going to spend any money. Because word of mouth in the days of pre-social media was useless. I mean, how long does it take somebody to read a book, recommend it to their next door neighbour over the fence, and then them to read it? I mean, word of mouth has no effect in the days before social media. But now, word of mouth is incredibly useful and powerful. And somebody with 70,000 followers recommends a book in the warmest possible terms it's really useful. I suppose just before publication, I started to feel a sort of sort of fluttering of anxiety that maybe this was going to be quite successful. And I got that sort of dreadful fear of success, which is the other side of the coin from fear of failure, which had been my previous companion throughout my career. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, it, it's wonderful to see the success of the book, but I know that these things can be a bit destabilising. How did you cope with that? It was generally all very pleasant. It does make you sort of rethink your sense of yourself because I'd obviously developed a sense of myself as being somebody who was, you know, an underachiever and that had been sort of a core part of my personality for many years. And then suddenly to have that taken away from me, cruelly snatched away from me, (laughs) I had to sort of reimagine myself as somebody who might even perhaps be an overachiever and have been (laughs) overestimated in my abilities. And and I had to sort of uh, rethink my position. And of course... Then you start to worry that, you know, having had all this positive publicity and great sales and people being generally 
seeming to like the book and it's selling and actually earning some money, you think, well, this is a trick you can only play once because next time the sort of rags to riches goodwill is not there. You can really only play the card of this poor undiscovered writer once and I've, I've already played my joker now and so the next book I feel is almost doomed to disappoint. So obviously that's something in the back of my mind as I write. Mm. Yeah, it's a pressure, isn't it? Can you do it again? But I mean, you have such a groundswell of support for your work now. Your backlist has taken off hugely as well, hasn't it? Lots of people going back to discover those other books. Yes, I mean, that's really been the nicest thing almost, is the fact that those books that I sort of laboured over and, and with each one felt, oh, this will be the one that will sell finally and one of the only things that kept me going was the thought that if I didn't then all those books in the past were wasted and I was just trying to keep going in order to resurrect those so it's really nice to see them back on the shelves with new jackets and looking nice even though they they feel as though they were written in another century I mean they were they were written in not only another century another millennium in fact Mm. they were written so long ago but it's just nice to think that 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 investment wasn't wasted and it's another kind of reinforcement of that idea that the only thing you can do as a writer is write the best books you can and I always thought with each of those books I still like them I still think they're good I've never written something I thought was rubbish and just published it because I could so I've always felt that I did as much as I could to write the best book I could and it's still there and therefore those qualities however old it is are still within it. Mm. As you say I mean some of the books were written in the last millennium. And actually, in our lifetimes, we've straddled huge change. That When your first books came out in the early mid-90s, mobile phones were still pretty much in their infancy and the internet wasn't an everyday thing. Uh, and these days, of course, those things are central to most people's lives. I remember as a young writer feeling really cross about mobile phones, thinking that they'd ruined the possibility of any stories that I might want to tell, because all the novels that I loved, that I knew, hinged hugely on people not being able to get in touch with people at the essential moment to tell stories or or to share their their truth, share the the letter under the carpet, all that sort of thing. And I remember thinking, oh God, I, I don't know how I could write a story now, because that anyone can get hold of anyone instantly is that something that you felt conscious of in your work or how has technology how has that change shaped no what you're saying is exactly exactly what I felt especially when I was writing young adult fiction because mobile phones very much had come in by then and I felt I'd used every trick in the book to get my characters away from their technology for long enough to get into some kind of peril because you know, I felt that they're completely connected up to everybody all the time. And how do you get that sense of isolation and danger that you need Mm. for your characters? And like you say, the the sort of misdirected communication and the letter that takes too long to arrive and all those things, all those ways that people don't communicate seem to have just been taken away. And I think that's why a lot of young adult writers write fantasy or historical, because that's a way of avoiding this deadening effect of technology it's really difficult for it not to scupper your plotting. Will, it, will you return to trying to write about the contemporary era again, about the internet age or the digital era? Or... I don't know. I don't know. I don't feel attracted to it. The, the book I'm working on at the moment is, you know, set in the past again, in the, pre, the pre-internet the era. I think that, that that's not a coincidence. I think I just feel more comfortable looking at the past, really. I, I'm sure that's something to do with getting older, that, that old things suddenly seem more more attractive than they used to Mm. I mean I enjoy reading books that are set in very contemporary and manage to deal with this 
without spoiling novels and you know they work really well and I'm always I'm always trying to notice how they do it as as I read Um, but I just I just don't think I'm of that I'm not of that world because I didn't grow up with it and so my inner child doesn't recognize it and technology will continue to outpace us you know we can't write fast enough to keep up with it so in a sense we're always writing historical fiction as regards technology things by the time you've written them will be old Mm. almost I think writing historical fiction is partly a way of just embracing that idea and avoiding the pitfalls Mm. there's also something quite comforting about the past isn't there because we know how it ended Mm. (laughs) we know that we all survived yeah so it's not as though whereas I think there's so much uncertainty and anxiety these days about what's happening to the world and about pandemic and all these things Mm. everyone actually having that reassurance of well if I read a novel that set in the 1950s I know the world's not going to blow up at the end (laughs) Um, (laughs) that's one less thing to worry about yeah yeah I hadn't really thought about it like that I mean you know I don't I don't read every modern novel with a fear that you know their world is going to end at the end of the book I'm sort of slightly suspicious of nostalgia I think it's got its pitfalls and I think it's led us into some dangerous places recently so I'm always kind of aware that I don't really like to have a a rosy glow around the past I I like to see it as in all its sort of sooty foggy spiteful reality tempting though it is to sort of wallow in this village green and the Morris dancers and all that sort of thing I tend to look at it with a slightly cynical eye Mm. yeah it's probably the wisest way to to look at it so if you could go back to that young 20-something returning from New Zealand with a manuscript with high hopes, what might you say to that young writer? I suppose I would just be saying what I always knew to be the case, that you're just going to have to be very patient. You're going to have to adopt a mindset of short-term pessimism but long-term optimism. Each book you write, you think, this probably isn't going to do anything. It's probably not going to make my name. It's not going to make me any money. It won't get any reviews. it probably hardly be in the shops. But eventually eventually something good will happen if I keep going and I've had that kind of attitude all the way through just not being too optimistic at you know in the moment for the for the immediate future but thinking if each book is good and I honour the the book itself and do it do it as well as I can they're not going to go anywhere they'll always be there everything will come right in the end that was Claire Chambers in conversation with Anne Morgan You can find out more about Claire on the RLF website. And that concludes episode 409, which was recorded and produced by Anne Morgan. Coming up in episode 410, in our new My Favourite Author series, RLF writers explore their reasons for naming a particular author as their favourite. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.